This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Tony Cohn. A few weeks ago, Side Door producer Rachel Aronoff and I hopped in a grungy little Hyundai rental to drive 70 miles outside of Washington, D.C. Our destination? The Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, also known as SCBI. It's a guarded compound in Front Royal, Virginia that the public doesn't normally get to see. <laughs> do, do you think the people in Front Royal in this area know what goes on here? I hope not. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have any idea. That's our guide, Chris Crow. Beyond the gated entrance lies the SCBI campus. There are some offices, staff housing, a cafeteria, and it's surrounded by hundreds of acres of rolling hills and forests. It reminds me of a small college campus in the middle of nowhere, except there are no students or people wandering around. It's actually a little eerie, but we later learned that the real action was happening just out of view. In addition to knowing his way around SCBI, Chris Crow is a bird keeper here. And yes, Crow really is his last name. He met us by the parking lot and brought us into his world. Guam rail, a brown bird native to Guam. He's about the size of a pigeon, but unlike a pigeon, he's flightless. And you can pet him too. Really? Here you go, Rachel. Okay. You, you live your best bird yeah. life. SCBI is part of the Smithsonian's National Zoo, but it's out of the public eye. Here, scientists study and breed more than 20 species of animals, animals you might not have even heard of before, like the scimitar-horned oryx, the maned wolf, and the dama gazelle. And there's a reason for that. A lot of the animals at SCBI, including the Guam rail, are endangered. They were almost wiped out when, during World War II. They accidentally brought brown tree snakes, a non-native species, to Guam. And it was wiping out all the bird species. At one point, the Guam rail was actually extinct in the wild, as in completely wiped out. But breeding centers like SCBI helped revive the wild population. Seeing animals that have bounced back from the edge of extinction made me feel like I was at Jurassic Park, except with smaller and less scary animals. But there was someone at SCBI that I was a little intimidated to meet. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. She's very graceful. She's a great dancer, great singer. Who is this amazing creature? Shakira? Beyonce? Close. This time on Side Door, we meet Walnut, a famous white-naped crane who's helping to secure the very future of her species. Though she doesn't do it alone, some of the credit should go to birdkeeper Chris Crow. We'll meet this odd couple right after a quick break. Hey there, Side Dorables. A quick favor. We're conducting a listener survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill it out and give us a sense of who you are. Please visit survey.prx.org slash sidedoor to take the survey. That's survey.prx.org slash side door. And thank you. Side door is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. It isn't every day that you meet someone who completely embodies their last name. But Chris Crow definitely does. 
most of my hobbies involve animals in some way. I draw, I bird watch, I hike, I take nature photography, things like that. Chris is all about birds, especially the birds that he takes care of at SCBI, which includes three species of cranes, hooded, white-naped, and red-crowned. Most of Chris's time is spent making sure that the cranes are safe and happy. I mean, a happy crane is a productive crane. Uh, I don't think they're going to breed if they're not uh, comfortable. Chris showed us around the crane complex in his truck. And you know that classic moment when a dad, beaming with pride, pulls out his wallet and flips through pictures of his kids with someone he's just met? Seeing all of Chris's cranes felt a bit like that. He'd even named many of them himself. This is Brenda and Eddie. This is a pair. They're already nesting. They had two eggs this week. Oh. And these are the three amigos. These are three chicks we got uh, from last year. And then we pulled up to Walnut's enclosure. It was this grassy space, maybe 100 feet long, surrounded by a tall chain-link fence to keep her from flying out. Wait, remind me which one Walnut is? Uh, this one right here. Walnut is a white-naped crane. So her head and the back of her neck are white. Uh, the rest of her body is gray. She has bare red skin around the eyes. And she's not just one shade of gray. Walnut's feathers look watercolored. They vary from what the paint store calls deep space, a dark charcoal gray, to cascade white, a light gray-blue color. Walnut's about five feet tall. She sports a sharp bill, a long, elegant neck, legs that go for miles, and, like so many other SCBI residents, she's endangered. Cranes are one of the most endangered bird families in the world. 11 of the 15 species are endangered because of habitat loss. They're losing the wetland habitat they need for feeding and nesting. What does it mean for a species to be endangered? Endangered means there's so few of them, they're likely to go extinct. Cranes, they continue to lose habitat, they continue to be shot, they continue to be disturbed. Um, so their populations are continue to go down, and at some point they won't be able to recover unless we change the way we're dealing with the habitat and with the wildlife. The white-naped crane is the fourth rarest crane in the world. It's estimated that there are only about 5,000 left in the wild. Their breeding range covers China, Mongolia, and Russia. Uh, they migrate in the fall to southeastern China the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea and Japan. Is it, I mean, that's crazy that they're in the demilitarized zone. Have they always been there? They've always wintered in the Korean Peninsula, but that's about all the habitats that, that's left for them now, because um, people can't go in there to disturb them, the habitat can't be destroyed, and the cranes don't weigh enough to set off the landmines. Basically, white-nape cranes can get along anywhere that people aren't destroying their habitat or shooting at them. They're just a very ancient, very successful uh, species of bird until people came along and started ruining everything. <laughs> but not to get too down on us, about 30 years ago, we did notice that many species, not just white-naped cranes, were suffering. So zoos and research centers banded together to create the Species, the species survival, survival Plan. plan. That network of scientists and keepers knew that they couldn't stop hunting and habitat loss by themselves. So they decided to focus on breeding captive populations of threatened or endangered species at different sites across the U.S. And it's basically an insurance population in case the wild population is lost. For some species, depending on where they're from, there can also be a source for reintroduction into the wild. Today, there are over 500 species survival plan programs, including one for white-nape cranes. The goal of the White Nape Crane Program is maintaining a captive population that's as healthy and genetically diverse as possible. But breeding the cranes for the program, like they do at SCBI, 
is tricky. There's a number of cranes in captivity that can't reproduce naturally because of physical problems or behavioral problems. Uh, the main thing we see is a behavioral problem where cranes were hand-raised in the early 80s before people really thought it out, and they're imprinted on people. Basically, cranes will imprint or bond with and then follow whatever big thing is raising them. So if a crane is raised by people, it's going to follow people around, and eventually it's going to have some trouble acting and breeding like a crane. But the keepers can't let that fly. It comes down to genetics. You can't breed cranes too closely related to one another, or you'd risk having an unhealthy population. It's better to have a large pool of genes to choose from. But in the case of white nape cranes, there aren't a lot of them to pair. The only way to increase that pool is to add new genes to it from cranes who haven't yet had chicks, which means that keepers often need to help the reluctant reproducers. And Chris knows that all too well. Okay, heads up to parents, we're about to discuss the cranes and the bees in detail, so you might want to skip ahead about two minutes. The first crane that I believe I had to help catch for a semen collection was a, a big tall male named Ray. Yep, semen collection. He's about five feet tall and I'm not much taller than that, so he's you know, at eye level with me, not wanting to turn around. Uh, I think I extended my foot so he would attack my foot and then we're able to distract his bill and then grab him up real quick. It's been about 14 years since Chris first attempted collecting crane semen. Now he's got it down to a science. We normally do it with two people, so after we've caught the crane, one person will stand over the bird, kind of straddle them between your legs and start massaging their legs and their back. And then that person's called the handler and then the collector will be at the back end of the crane uh, on their knees uh, massaging and hopefully stimulating a sample to come out of the cloaca. For those of us who aren't bird biologists, the cloaca is an opening that both male and female birds have. Everything happens out of that one hole, from pooping to laying eggs to having sex. All right, so that's the first step of the process. Then what? We draw it up into a syringe, so then we go over and catch the female, manually massage her, and if she responds well, then we gently insert the syringe and eject the, the contents. There you have it, folks. Crane artificial insemination, or AI for short. It's only about a 30-second or less procedure, but they, they absolutely hate being held. I mean, it's easy to understand why they hate it, but not all cranes feel that way. One crane even likes it. That's Chris imitating a crane's happy noise. She'll do it during the artificial insemination. Of course, we're talking about our friend Walnut. We wanted to see Chris and Walnut's relationship for ourselves. Hello, Walnut. Hello, pretty girl. As we approached Walnut's enclosure, she immediately recognized Chris and started doing her mating dance, flapping her wings, ruffling her tail feathers, and wriggling her neck so it looked a bit like a snake. So that's some of the dancing, the head bobbing. So that's one of the signals that... Yeah. Yeah. She knows you, recognizes you, has an affinity towards you. Yeah, that's part of the dancing. It just shows her she's excited. Chris told Rachel and me to wait outside while he entered her enclosure with some treats. And Walnut didn't take her bright orange eyes off us. Okay, I'm going to record her eating a peanut. That sound you heard? That was Walnut snapping at our producer Rachel through the fence with her knife-like bill. She's much more hostile when when she sees me with, with other women, other keepers, or female volunteers, her, her demeanor totally changes. Walnut was actually just jealous of Rachel. And that was a threat she just did there. By, by lifting her tail and putting her head between her legs? Yeah, and also when she, she also growls, it's kind of subtle when she does it, but 
Meanwhile, Chris was on the other side of that fence, about two feet from her. So you're not nervous at all right now? No, 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 she's totally cool. Now, I should clarify, Walnut is still a wild animal. Though Chris and Walnut have a special relationship, she's not a pet. She is five feet tall and her sharp claws and bill look dangerous. I mean, you heard the way that she snapped at Rachel. But she sees Chris, a human, as her mate. So how did Chris gain this cranky wild bird's trust in order to help her reproduce? We get the full story right after a quick break. In late February, Chris got up on stage to tell an audience about his and Walnut's intimate relationship. This was part of an event called Strange and Curious Smithsonian Jobs. Needless to say, Chris's job definitely fit the bill. As the evening's host, I introduced Chris on stage. Then, Chris told everyone about his and Walnut's relationship over the past 14 years. And it was so weird and wonderful that it inspired this whole episode. Chris began by telling the audience about cranes and how AI, or artificial insemination, is typically done. But I'll let Chris pick up the story right when he and Walnut first met. Um, she came to us at 24 years of age, never having produced any offspring of her own. They should be breeding at two or three years of age. And she didn't because she was imprinted on people. She was hand-raised in the early 80s. And she bounced around at other zoos. Um, she allegedly killed two males, cranes. They tried to pair with her. I say allegedly, it's not like she was tried and convicted for it. Uh, but if anything, she was set up or framed because you know, when we pair cranes, we put them side by side so they can see each other but not contact each other. And I, I think she would have made it very clear she didn't want anything to do with the male. So as soon as we, we both arrived at SCBI in the same year, she was all automatically tamer than the others. She would always respond well to when she saw any of us. She would dance, bob her head, dance around. But given that she was imprinted on people and that we needed to do AI, and that catching birds for AI is stressful to her and involves potential risk when we're catching them to both them and us, I thought, well, we thought we could try training her to accept AI without <laughs> any physical restraint, which would be much better for her. So I began spending a lot of time with her, getting her used to my presence. I would bring her dead mice, which was her favorite, and peanuts. And I decided to start by trying to just put my hand on her. So I would reach out my hand. I would say the word touch, just to get her familiar with that sound, and then reach out. And of course, she would walk away. But gradually, over time, I was able to touch her before she walked away. So I gave her rewards of, of praise and dead mice. Uh, I would bring her nesting material, which she really liked. She never liked where I put it, but she liked that I brought it. Um, At this moment, on screen, there's a picture of Chris reaching out and putting his hand on Walnut's back. So over time, in this one, you can see she's allowed me to pet her entire back uh, and staying still, and I would toss her a mouse after that. And the training would occur at her pace. Um, I would only do it if she would allow me to approach closer. And breeding season rolled around, and she solicited me to mate with her. Um, <laughs> so and over the course of this time, she started to become more hostile to the other keepers. Um, and when, <laughs> and would go from threatening them to attacking them. So when she started doing this, I would walk towards her to go to reach out, touch, and get her to stay still like that while I touched her before she'd walk away. Then I was able to run my hands down her back and then start 
manually massaging her. But then I'd have to stop and reach to practice to put the syringe into the cloaca. So I learned to use one hand to massage and one hand with the syringe, and we eventually got it together. And it led to this. So now there's a picture of Chris, like, crouching behind Walnut and artificially inseminating her. Most people would be arrested for this sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that led to this. It's a picture of a cute baby crane. We've gotten seven chicks from her. Um, we took her eggs and placed them in another crane's nest. It would have been too much for her to do on her own because males and females take turns uh, during the month-long incubation. Would leave her with a dummy egg. All the other cranes would accept a wooden dummy egg, but she somehow knew it wasn't right and she would always kick it out of the nest. So I had to use a real egg that was drained and filled with plaster and she would sit on those. Um, and the reason we let her sit on them is because if you pull eggs away from a crane, they can, a female can recycle in two weeks and lay again. And we didn't want her to just keep laying and laying. So we would let her sit for a little while. Um, at least two of her chicks have gone on to produce offspring of their own, naturally. So we are both grandparents. Um, <laughs> and they were all raised by, by other cranes, so they're perfectly normal. And in case it sounds like too sweet a story, I have strayed. There have been others. Um, <laughs> these are two that Walnut doesn't know about. Um, and since you can't see Chris's presentation photos, you should know that the other cranes he's trained are named Amanda and Wu Chang. These are both imprinted birds that we needed to do artificial insemination. Um, Amanda, first year she was here, I was paired with her. I trained her to do AI without restraint, and we got some chicks from her. During the training, I did call her the wrong name. I said Walnut. And, and she noticed, she stopped and turned around and looked at me. But luckily I had a mouse in my pocket and that smoothed things right over. Um, Wu Chang is a, a hand-raised female who was paired with a hand-raised male at another zoo. We're not bonded as close as Walnut and I. Um, Wu Chang still is very friendly to the other male keepers. Um, we keep getting sent uh, cranes that are imprinted on people that other zoos can't breed. Every time we think we're done, that we've, we've solved the problem, we get sent other ones. So we, we get all the, the special cranes. And <laughs> we hope that we've, we've bred all the imprinted white nape cranes. Um, we've been asked to take on hooded cranes and other Asian species that numbers only 26 in captivity. White napes are up in the 70s. Uh, largely to what we've done, we've accounted for about 25% of the offspring produced. Let's leave Chris there so that we can drive home his last point. SCBI's white-naped crane breeding program has been an incredible success. They've been able to breed even the most stubborn cranes through techniques like artificial insemination. Right now, they're even working on something called cryopreservation, which will allow scientists to freeze white-naped crane sperm and use it at a later date. But while captive cranes are thriving, their wild cousins continue to die off. 15 years ago, the Western population of white-nape cranes was at 3,000. Today, it's around 1,000. Those aren't promising numbers, and they won't improve until their wetland habitats are restored. And who knows when that's going to happen. Until then, it's nice to know that there is a plan B. Well, a species survival plan B that will guarantee the white-nape crane's future in captivity. It might be hard to see a white-naped crane nesting in Mongolia. But maybe you'll find yourself in Front Royal, Virginia, hiking in the forest, and you'll hear a faint primal screech carried on the breeze. What's that? You might ask yourself. 
Well, it's Walnut, calling out to her longtime mate, Chris Crow. And with that, we'll leave you with a tribute to Chris and Walnut performed by the kids at the Smithsonian Zoo Camp in 2012. to Side Door, a podcast from a Smithsonian with support from PRX. This Chris and Walnut musical number was written in collaboration with Kid Pan Alley. If you want to see some pictures of Chris and Walnut, you can check them out on our website at si.edu slash There, you can also see information for upcoming strange and curious Smithsonian job events put on by the Smithsonian Associates. And speaking of, special thanks to Amanda Chavinson from the Smithsonian Associates for letting us be involved with the event and to Sam Game for his excellent sound engineering. We're supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. This episode was mixed by Tarek Fuda. Original artwork by Greg Fisk. I also want to give a very heartfelt thanks to Gabe Kozowitz, Sidor's editorial advisor and right-hand man who is headed for a new adventure out west. He's been here since the early days when we were getting Sidor off the ground. Gabe, best of luck on your new adventure and thanks for everything. And as one last send-off, Gabe, we read the credits. Our podcast team is Justin O'Neill, Rachel Aronoff, Jason Orfanon, Jess Sadek, Nico Picaro, and Elizabeth Pilger. Extra support comes from John Barth and Genevieve Sponsor. Your host is Tony Cohn, and I'm Gabe Kosowitz. Thanks, everybody. What is that? That was Chewy signing off. Oh, was it? Yeah, that was goodbye, Chewy.